0: Good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name's Mark and I get to serve as one of the elders here and I get to introduce our speaker this morning. Uh, We heard just a moment ago that there's a member meeting coming up uh, after the service and the member meeting sort of raises the question, how do decisions get made around here and who runs the church and kind of the way things work here is, well, the most important thing to know is Jesus is the head of this church, right? Jesus is in charge. Humanly speaking, though, there are people that are involved and we believe that Jesus governs the church through the elders with the congregation. So the congregation, you the church members, you set apart elders to know, feed, lead, and protect the flock. And so we are blessed as a congregation to have 11 elders. Six of them are non-staff elders, five are on-staff elders. And if you want to Meet the elders. You can go to the website or you can play a fun game at lunch. Can you name all 11 elders and figure out if you know them or not? But this morning, we are going to hear the word from one of our elders named Adam Supas. Adam has been a member here since 1997, and he's been an elder since 2018. And we are so grateful for the Supas family. We love you and are so grateful to God for you. That's great. Please do that. So, Adam works hands on with the 515 ministry, and today he's going to feed us with God's word. So, Adam, please come.
1: Thanks, Mark. Good morning. Great to be with you this morning. You may have heard the old expression it's always darkest before the dawn it's attributed to an English theologian from about 400 years ago and it basically means when times are at their worst for us they're about to get better what sort of darkness have you faced recently maybe you're facing it now darkness of grief of the loss of someone you love a relational conflict, physical hardship, mental illness, or a dire circumstance, maybe it's the recognition that you're not the person you know you should be. Where do you find help in that darkness? Where do you find freedom from that darkness? On the surface, our text for today is not a happy one. It's dark, and all of it occurs, appropriately, at night. I'm going to invite uh, Kenneth Moresco. Actually, unless Sherry Jackson is here, I'm going to invite Kenneth Moresco. Would you mind to come and... Oh, Sherry's here. Come on up, Sherry. Sherry positioned herself in the corner I missed. Sherry, thank you so much for reading God's word. Let me pray, and then you can read God's word. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thanks for getting us all here together. I pray that you would bless the the, the hearing and the preaching of your word. Do in our hearts what you can do, what we cannot do. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, "'If I must die with you, I will not deny you.' And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, "'Sit here while I pray.' And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, "'My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch.' And going a little farther, he fell on the ground, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked.
1: The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is dark. In this passage, we see the sufferings of Jesus intensify. He's entering the darkest time of his life on earth. You can almost hear the music grow dark like in a movie. The isolation, the abandonment, the rejection, it's already begun. Jewish religious leaders have been seeking how to arrest and kill Jesus, and now one of his own disciples has sought them out, ready to betray him. But look a little deeper. We'll see that this darkness that Jesus entered, it was the darkness he came to defeat the darkness of sin. See, Jesus is our Savior, and he is God. But you could also call him a disciple, the truest ever follower of God the Father. He's the divine disciple. And sin, well, that's all the ways humanity has missed the mark, failing to follow God's perfect commands. In the text before us, the divine disciple enters darkness in order to defeat it. This passage strips away all bases of optimism about humanity. It offers us hope from only one source, the Savior. In the darkness, Jesus uniquely trusts God and opens a way for us to as well. Jesus uniquely trusts God was abandoned and betrayed by humanity to ransom us from sin so we can trust and follow him as our risen king. This text gives us three scenes of Jesus as the divine disciple enters darkness in order to defeat it. Scene one, to the Mount of Olives, that's verses 26 to 31, we see Jesus surrounded by boastful disciples who will abandon and deny him, but he's centering himself On the word and showing dazzling insight. To set the scene, this is Thursday of the most consequential week of Jesus' ministry and of human history. Jesus was aware of the significance of this time, but it seems like no one else was. Jesus had made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem four days earlier. Since then, he had cleansed the temple. He had confounded the religious leaders. He'd taught his disciples. He'd warned them to stay awake not be found asleep. As we heard last week, he was lovingly anointed with costly ointment. Judas went to the religious leaders to offer to betray him. Jesus had celebrated the Passover with his disciples, announcing his betrayal, and instituted the Lord's Supper. Now, they're finishing up the Passover meal, the annual meal remembering God's deliverance from slavery it's late in the evening, maybe almost midnight. They head east from Jerusalem to the western slopes of the Mount of Olives. Here, we see Jesus centering himself on the word. As the perfect human, Jesus had built his life centered on the Lord and on the word. We see this in verse 26. They, sung, they sang a hymn, singing to the Lord. That's living out the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus practiced the praise of God with singing a hymn. And this hymn was probably scripture, one of the Psalms 113 to 118, which were praise psalms sung in connection with festivals. We see his word-centeredness in verse 27 again when it says, for it is written. Jesus had a lived experience. He had knowledge based on his perspective, personal identity, history, just like we all do. But for Jesus, his lived experience was secondary to what God revealed as truth through the word. Scripture interpreted life. It wasn't the other way around. Jesus wasn't trying to shoehorn the word into his experience to interpret the word in a way that put him at ease. Rather, he saw the word of God as fully trustworthy and authoritative and predictive for his life and his death. So, I'm happy to have a friend visiting here today who I'm not gonna single out, but I'm gonna say that he's one of several friends who I got to hang out with last weekend. Got to go uh, away to a friend's farmhouse. These are guys I'd known from college, 25 years ago. We've kept in touch, we've lost touch, we've regained touch, and it was an amazing weekend for a lot of reasons, but there was no reason that was better for it being a great weekend than seeing these three guys who have walked through 25 years of times of darkness, as well as good times, but centering their lives on the word and on the Lord and seeing how beautiful those lives have been lived out through darkness and through light. Is your life centered on God's word? Centered on the Lord? Does it instruct you Fuel your praise? Is the word renewing your mind so you can test and approve God's will, so you can rightly interpret your circumstances? Does it inform and guide what you do and don't do? We're called to this as we follow King Jesus. So in this scene, we're seeing something else. We're seeing Jesus' dazzling insight. He's prophesying. He's predicting the future in detail. Look at verse 27. First, he predicts, you'll all fall away, for it's written, I'll strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Consider how stunning this would have sounded to the disciples. They've been with him now three years through thick and thin. Friends. But Jesus amazingly brings this centuries-old prophecy and shows that it was written about him all along. He's referring to the book, of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, chapter 13. Zechariah prophesied about a future king, a priest, about a shepherd of God's people, even a friend of God. But stunningly, it says God will use the evil deeds of humanity in striking down this appointed leader to accomplish his saving purpose. Jesus is saying, I'm that king and that priest, the shepherd to be struck who will gather God's people. The divine disciple will enter darkness in order to defeat it. Next, he predicts Peter's denial. He says, this very night before the rooster crows twice, if you're going to deny me. Last week, we saw him predict Judas' betrayal and hear Peter's denial. He was emphatic. He was specific about this. Peter had said, even though they all fall away, I won't. He wasn't lying, but he was clueless. He was thinking Jesus would give a military victory, not a sacrificial death. And his boldness was tinged with boastful arrogance. And the bigger the boast, often the harder the fall. To borrow a meme from a couple years ago, well, let me, let me just first say, our world is oriented around self Our world says we can fulfill our dreams if we believe in ourselves. But you're not that guy, pal. Trust me. You're not that guy. Peter wasn't that guy. Neither are we. Jesus knows who we are. He knows our darkness. All other religions prescribe a plan of self-improvement, self-salvation. And that always ends in darkness and death. This is exactly why we need salvation from outside ourselves. We need one that comes from God and is by faith. There's one more prediction here. It's this beautiful promise in verse 28 of resurrection and reunion. He says, after I'm raised up, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. He almost says it matter-of-factly. And it seems like none of the disciples even caught it. But it's the greatest prediction of all. Jesus won't fail even after abandonment, betrayal, and death. And neither does God's sovereign purpose. That's scene one. Jesus surrounded by fallen humanity, centered on the word, with divine insight. Now, scene two. Here, we see Jesus failed by friends, under staggering pressure, but relying on God and righteously overcoming. Look at verses 32 to 42 in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a transition here in location and tone from this confrontational conversation on the Mount of Olives to isolated prayer in Gethsemane. An olive grove on that mountain as the divine disciple is entering darkness in order to defeat it. Here we get to watch Jesus relying on God, again, to set the scene In Gethsemane, Jesus tells most of his disciples to sit and wait, and he brings Peter, James, and John along with him. He becomes distressed, troubled, and sorrowful, and he leaves even these friends, telling them to remain and watch. He goes off by himself, falls to the ground, and prays. He's relying on God in prayer. He opens his prayer by declaring God's intimate care, sovereign power. He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Abba means Father in Aramaic, the, the language used by the common people. So Essentially, he's saying Father in two languages. And he prayed, remove this cup from me, in verse 36. Ask that the hour might pass from him, in verse 35. In his humanity, Jesus is wrestling with the Father's divine will. He's not making demands, but he's exploring possibilities with God. The cup is a symbolic reference to a great trial Jesus is about to endure as a cup he'll need to drink. In fact, it's suffering and punishment that God's enemies will experience, it's darkness. Have you ever asked anyone, a God, to remove a person or a situation that was difficult? and all you heard was silence? Jesus knows the Father's sovereign power to do anything. Surely he remembered Genesis 22, where Abraham held a knife over his son Isaac, and the Lord spared Isaac by providing a different sacrifice. And Jesus is asking, is there a way that might, he might be spared too? He did it three times, using the same words, it says. He's modeling for us trust in God's sovereignty and also persistence in prayer. He's praying, but he's also relying on God through fellowship. He took with him Peter, James, and John. Jesus knew that God's love often comes in the form of people, and these three were among his closest friends and disciples. When you're facing hard times, your friends, your church can be a real help with their prayer, sure, but also with their presence, being there. But what if they fall asleep? Because Jesus was failed by his friends. Remain here and watch, he said in verse 34. He'd said the same thing two days earlier. Stay awake, stay spiritually vigilant. But three times he returns from praying and three times he sees them sleeping. These are the same three as were with him at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John. At that mountain, God spoke and told the disciples to listen to Jesus. Here, on this mountain, God is silent. And the disciples have not listened to Jesus. Darkness. They don't come through for him here. Even when your friends fail you, though, God will not because Jesus persevered. But there is an exhortation to us disciples here. Jesus challenged them, couldn't you watch one hour? They were tired, sure. But human weakness is not an excuse. There's a a measure of, of shame and embarrassment here. We need to take seriously the command to watch and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. Being tempted is not the same as entering it entering temptation is giving in. Failing the test of faithfulness to Jesus. Jesus refers to the flesh here. right? What that relates to is, is efforts that's powered by ourselves. Think New Year's resolutions. And our flesh is weak. Weakness is a feature of being human. It's not a bug. We were made to fully depend on God. Sometimes I think that I don't need to watch and pray. Because there are more urgent priorities in my life, but my flesh is weak. And when I end up falling, disobeying the Lord, lacking in joy, quarreling with my family, you know, it's really no surprise. In fact, Jesus predicted it. Good news. We have hope in darkness to resist temptation as we watch and pray because We are no longer slaves to sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And we can learn from Jesus's prayer. He brought his needs and his desires to God persistently, but trusted in God's sovereign control and perfect plan, and obeyed God's revealed will. Though perfectly human, Jesus never gave in to temptation. In fact, he's relying on God while under staggering pressure. Look at verses 33 to 35. He began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He was moved to this intense state, something like dread. He said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Jesus was not given to hyperbole. And as a carpenter who lived the life of a worker, he, he was not a soft man. This was agonizing. Luke's account of the event even adds that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Death began way back in the Garden of Eden. Spiritual death began the day mankind ate the fruit God forbade. And physical death soon followed, and we feel its weight today here in a different garden Jesus the only one who personally did not deserve death is feeling its weight his hands and his feet are not yet nailed to the cross but his heart his heart is already going there it says in verse 35 that he fell Jesus fell This is the first place we see this in Mark. There's lots of falling going on, but it's falling at Jesus' feet. Those afflicted with demons are falling at Jesus' feet. Those with uh, seeking healing are falling at his feet. Those who have been healed are falling at his feet, but here it's Jesus falling. Amy and I recently joined a gym that puts us through these 45-minute instructor-led workouts, and they are all challenging. Some of them are exhausting and On numerous occasions, I have at the end of the workout literally fallen to the mat. But there's a sense of relief in my falling to that mat. Here, for Jesus, there's no relief. There's no joy. There's agony. Or maybe a a desperation for intimate fellowship with his father, a fellowship he has always enjoyed until now. This scene, though, it shows Jesus righteously overcoming in this darkness. He overcomes it when he's declaring in verse 36 Yet not what I will. This is one short verse, this short prayer. This is the heart of our text. He's overwhelmed, he's in darkness, but he's not running away from it. He's the perfect disciple. They fall asleep, he's alert. They claim they can stand with him. He's living in dependence. They give in to sleep and flee. He experiences the temptation to turn and run, but stays faithful. And he's divinely perfect in obedience. Jesus had taught his disciples, as we heard in the song and we sang today, praying in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. You know, the Lord's prayer says your will be done before it says, give us this day our daily bread. And now he's sincerely putting that prayer to work as no one ever did before or since. He's doing it perfectly. And, and now he's sincerely putting it in, into action. His obedience to God is not only an aspect of his humanity. In fact, it's built into the nature and the relationships of our triune God. You know, he's overcoming also when he says the hour has come, verses 41 and 42. The Son of Man is betrayed in the hands of sinners. My betrayer is at hand Time to watch and pray in the quiet night that's past. The hours come. Jesus knew he was the son of man. The conquering king prophesied in the Old Testament. But he also understood that the kingdom he was being given was to be populated with ransomed sinners. And he was the one to ransom them. He was about to be delivered, handed over, to Judas he says my betrayer is at hand he's right here just about there and he calls those who were persecuting uh, him those who are about to come arrest him he calls them sinners there's a little irony here because they had been criticizing Jesus for associating with sinners people they look down on but here they're the ones rejecting God's chosen leader that's a greater sin He says, rise, let us be going. He's not running away. He's going to meet the approaching crowd. Do you see what's going on here? This, this is the gospel unfolding. He had asked that the dark hour might pass from him, that the cup might be removed. And the father said, nothing. And Jesus accepts the father's refusal of his request. There's more suffering to come. Oh, but Jesus is resolved and he's succeeding in obedience where all others had failed. And by that success, the ransom is paid. The kingdom is opened to us who will receive that ransom. In the darkness, Jesus is uniquely trusting God. He's innocent and purposeful and he's opening a way for us as well. At this moment of the text, he's right in the middle of it. The divine disciple is entering darkness in order to defeat it. That scene two, Jesus, failed by his friends and under staggering pressure, but relying on God and righteously overcoming. Scene three, betrayal and arrested. Look at verses 43 to 52. We see Jesus here betrayed and abandoned, but resolutely submitting to God, knowing that his submission was the plan for our salvation. This third scene is, is quite a transition. It's it's tense, dramatic. There are five parts in rapid succession. Judas betrays him. He's arrested. There's a violent response. He rebukes his opponents. He's abandoned. It begins, it says, in verse 43, immediately. Mark's gospel includes that word a lot. Urgency is throughout this, but the pace had slowed starting on Palm Sunday. Here, it's picking up again. Jesus came frequently to the Mount of Olives to pray, which might be how Judas knew where to find him. There would have been a lot of groups camped around Jerusalem for the Passover at night. So Judas's help as a guide was important. The arresting crowd, it says, was sent by the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Look at the text. That represents all three groups that made up the Jewish ruling council. It's pretty dark that the leaders of the Savior's own people all conspired together against him. And Judas greets him. Greets him with a kiss. A kiss is a a sign of of hospitality and affection. A kiss on the cheek, a kiss on the hand. And to call someone rabbi was a, a term of respect used for a teacher. But here, it's false affection. It's false respect. You ever dealt with someone who would flatter you to your face? Who would act your friend and then would backstab you when the opportunity arose? How do you think Jesus felt? That's darkness. And someone strikes with a sword. We know from the other gospels that it was Peter and the disciples desert into darkness. But see his resolute submission Look at verse 46. They laid hands on him and seized him. Throughout the gospel, Jesus has always been totally in control. But here, when his, his enemies get to dictate the action for a bit, it might, it might appear to be beyond his control. Has Jesus lost his footing? No. Look at verses 48, 49, how he speaks. He chides them like a parent correcting a child. He's not trying to Escape them. He's not cowering before them, but he's, he's speaking with a corrective, a redemptive purpose, even here. He challenges them for sending a crowd and doing it at night. He was not a robber, a revolutionary. His ministry was transparent and in the open. I recently saw the new Mission Impossible movie. Uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, but there was actually a movie some years ago uh, that I, I, I think I enjoyed more. It was called The Born Identity. And, you know, similar movie, but but one of the differences, to me at least, was that the lead character in The Born Identity never had any self-doubt. He moves through this tremendous uh, cavalcade of circumstances, of lots of uncertainty, lots of risk, lots of unknowns, but he's always certain in his next move. Now, that's fiction. But Jesus really... Has always been in control. Over wind and waves and demons and disease and death, he knew just how they'd procure a room to celebrate the Passover, how one of his disciples would betray him, how the scriptures would be fulfilled in him. And the only reason they're able to seize him, to lay hands on him, to arrest him, is because his hour has come. The scripture must be fulfilled. One commentator said it this way, he walks through these events with a sovereign freedom and a striking note of authority. It is his cult, his temple, his guest room. No one outsmarts him, overpowers him, outmaneuvers him, catches him off guard or takes his life from him. He'll lay his life down of his own accord and he'll raise it up as well. Jesus is divinely aware that his submission was the plan for our salvation. He had prophesied in verse 49, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Just like we saw in verse 27, here we see Jesus knew his life and his death were to fulfill God's plan. He knew this rescue he was carrying out. It was not improvised. It was the plan God revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. And he references the scripture in verse 49. We don't know exactly which one he's referring to, Oh, but what he says resonates with the themes you find in the Psalms and the prophets of isolation, of abandonment, betrayal, darkness. For Jesus, the path to glory is through this darkness and he knows it. And that's true for us too. There is a warning here, let's not miss it. Judas betrayed Jesus, but for years, Judas had followed him. It appears that Judas was a counterfeit Christian. Judas had fooled them all except Jesus. You might not notice counterfeit Christians. They might seem to be the most earnestly religious people. But merely saying Jesus is your Lord, merely trying to obey some of his commands, does not make you a Christian. We must see our need for ransom from sin, a savior, and trust Jesus as that savior who paid the ransom and rose again. To not receive King Jesus as savior is to reject him. And to follow him for a time and then abandon that faith is still to reject him. Our passage ends with a stark picture of darkness. See verses 50 to 52. He's under arrest with no hope of being freed. His disciples have abandoned him. One has betrayed him. One's about to deny him. But, you know, Jesus declares that story will not end in darkness because the divine disciple entered darkness in order to defeat it. And by his unique trust in God, he opens a way for us to trust and follow him. He said it, said it in verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. He declares he will overcome where none else could through resurrection and that his followers would follow him on the other side of death. And the suffering he's enduring here is absolutely necessary in order for that to occur. There's something we need to remember about Jesus. Unique among all who ever lived, Jesus was one person, with two natures, a divine nature and a human one. He is fully God and fully human. He was always divine, but he added humanity to his deity in the incarnation. Throughout this passage, we see both of these natures on full display. And this matters. It matters because humans must pay for human sin And no mere human could bear the sins of others. Eric mentioned this in the call to worship this morning. To put it another way, as the divine son of God, Jesus could do what no other human has ever done. Jesus could bear the sins of many, sins that were not his, while we get credit for his righteous life. Peter says it like this in 1 Peter 3, Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So the death Christ began to experience here is our death because he was suffering in our place. And this is where we live today. Christians, all who believed on the Lord Jesus for rescue from sin have died with him and are alive with him, following him and enjoying the first taste of eternal life. Because he was abandoned and betrayed, we have the promise we'll never be. He'll never leave us or forsake us. We'll never be alone like he was. Praise God, he has not left his children alone in this life. He's given us his Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to guide us, instruct us, empower us, to seal us, guaranteeing us for heaven. Think of Peter, James, John, and the other disciples who utterly fail in this passage. In the book of Acts, these same disciples succeed over and over again once the Spirit came to them with power. That's scene three. So the divine disciple entered darkness in order to defeat it. And in that darkness, he uniquely trusted God. He opened a way for us as well. So what are we to do with this text? First... Let's trust and follow our God and our Redeemer. By defeating darkness, Jesus became our ransom and makes it possible for us to trust God in the darkness too. Think back to whatever personal darkness came to mind at the start of this message. We can do all things through Him. In dark times, we can follow His example. By praying and singing and setting our minds on Scripture and obeying what we know the Lord is calling us to. Finally, let's apply this text by singing his praises in dark times as well as good ones. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a song called Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. The song includes some beautiful truths. Hear these. He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ, who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. And later, he, the perfect son of man, in his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. We sing about the love of God here, and rightly so here's what love looks like. Jesus, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity, bringing his light of life into our longing, into our darkness, condescending so he could ransom us, the perfect son of man, who in his living, in his suffering, showed no trace or stain of sin. Mm. However great you think is the love of Jesus, he's better than that. He alone fully trusted God, was abandoned and betrayed by humanity to ransom us from sin so we can trust and follow him as our risen king. Amen. Lord, let it be so. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being yours, for the privilege of witnessing the divine disciple enter darkness to defeat it and knowing and knowing that he did and he has and so we can through Christ. Apply these words to our lives, to our hearts, and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.